0: Amen. Can we thank the band for leading us in worship this morning? I am at the point in life where my children follow sports more in a more focused way than I do. But I've always, as I have followed sports over the last 45 years, when an athlete comes out with an autobiography when he's 23 years old, what do you really have to say at 23 years old? I'm also perplexed when some religious guru or pastor or something in between comes out with an autobiography when they're 17 years old, and I'm even more perplexed when they write a book telling you how to be uh, in a good marriage when they've been married for two days. Uh, It is a lot. The idea of telling your story. How am I going to communicate this story? That's the goal. It's the goal of an autobiography to tell a story. It's the goal of a biography to tell a story. It's a goal of a memoir to tell a story. It's a goal for those who are writing these books to tell their story as best they can. Who gets to tell your story? Who is going to recap to the world what your life meant and what your life looked like? Who gets to tell that? Mark is told to tell the story of Jesus. And more than likely, he had an informant named Peter. If you have interacted with church in any way, shape, and form over the years, you have heard of Peter. He had really high highs and he had really low lows. He stumbles his way through the entirety of the story and he'll have moments where he declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, when Jesus asks who everyone says that he is. And you have low lows when he will say things, and Jesus will tell him that he is the devil, which is never a positive uh, way to reinforce someone. He has a really low low when he denies the person of Jesus. The notion of this story is something that we as a church family have been walking through for a good period of time now, on and off since October the 21st of 2021 the story of Jesus as told to us by Mark, who was more than likely informed by Peter. And the very beginning of the story that Mark tells about the person of Jesus is in chapter 1, verse 1, where it reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a pretty emphatic way to introduce the main figure of your story. And we as a group of people, as a church family, have walked through Mark's gospel. And as we walk through Mark's gospel, we've gotten to see Jesus declare who he is over and over and over and over, uh, actively interacting and interrupting the rhythms and patterns of death and declaring to the world that there is hope on the other side. And then we see Jesus over these last few weeks together. We, We watch Jesus move toward his death. We watch as other men act toward him. We watch as sinful people crucify him. We look at this story and we see that Jesus dies. And no matter how good of a storyteller you happen to be, if Jesus is dead, then your religious do-goodery really doesn't mean anything. If Jesus is dead, you being hopefully obedient to him and showing up in places like this, whether it's here or where you live, if you're a guest with us, it has no merit, it has no value. If Jesus is dead, it doesn't matter where Peter and their other disciples are at the end of Mark's gospel. It doesn't matter where you are on this Sunday morning. If Jesus is dead, then all of this, all of this is just silly. And the notion of us getting together and and trying to sing along is nothing more than really a karaoke gathering. If Jesus is dead, this doesn't matter. Commentator, theologian by the name of Carl F. Henry said this about the person of Jesus. That Jesus planted the only durable rumor of hope Amid the widespread despair of a hopeless world. Mark chapter 15, picking up in verse 40. Just to let us know the scenario, Jesus was crucified. And he is dead. Not almost dead. He is dead, dead. There were women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome In Galilee... These women followed him and took care of him. And many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. These were people who had aligned their lives with the hope that is Jesus. They weren't exactly sure as to what he was doing or why he was doing it. They just knew that there was something that was emphatically different about this Jesus. And the way that he was choosing to interact with their world was different than the people who they had given authority to. This Jesus did not just say how to act. He showed how to act. Jesus did not just say that death was a problem. He said that he could tell death to go away. This Jesus in a world that was scared to death of demons would tell demons to stop being there. In a world full of disaster, this Jesus would tell disasters to cease. That is who Jesus is. And these women are aligned with Jesus. Verse 42, we, we meet another person in the story. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, he came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, which is sort of strange because Jesus has been crucified as if he is a traitor, someone who has really spat in the face of the government, and no one should really ever want to bury Jesus. There should be no care or concern for the body of this Jesus. There is no desire whatsoever to meet the needs of the people who loved Jesus. But Joseph, many believe, was at least in some way aligned with the kingdom message of Jesus. And many believe at this point he was a disciple of Jesus, just in secret. He'll make that public later. He wants to take the body of Jesus and bury him. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. He was shocked by this. 45. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down. He wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were watching where he was laid. More than likely, this was a family tomb because that's how tombs worked at this point in history. And you would put the body in the tomb to decompose. It's on a shelf about waist high, very similar to what I have here without the iPad. Longer. And when the body would finish its decomposition, you would take the remains, the bones which were left, put those in a jar, put them on the shelf for the next person who passed away. But the thing is, people don't usually die in convenient ways. So you had to make sure that the scent that was there was not overwhelming when someone else would go in to deal with the body. You had to make sure that whatever, the stench was not overwhelming, that it was not terrible. You you had to do certain things that these women would do. And everyone at this point is going through the motions of being faithful to this Jesus who was. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so they could go and anoint him. You would go in, you would make sure that the linen had stuff on it to keep it from smelling. Because after all, death is never convenient. And whenever someone would come into a tomb, they would be overwhelmed by this terrible stench. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. and they're asking one another this question who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us who's the strongest of us will there be anyone there to help us the guards won't help us maybe they're flexing and comparing muscles the way that my sons do who is going to help us? So even in this moment, we're dealing with death and we're responding to death because after all, death is something that each and every one of us are going to have to respond to. And you have Joseph, who we met just a few moments ago, who has responded to death by dealing with the body of Jesus in the best way that he can. And here these women, these faithfully obedient women, are going to the tomb of Jesus to continue to at least honor this person they trusted even though he had been convicted and crucified as if he were a criminal. Who will roll the stone away for us? Who is going to open the tomb? If Jesus is dead, our hopeful obedience its not going to be enough. At best, it's sentimental. At worst, it's delusional. If Jesus is dead, the notion of being faithful to religious tradition is not enough. If Jesus is dead, it's all just silly. No matter how many pastels we purchase, No matter how many times we go and meet with a bunny dressed in 80s garments. No matter how many churches put out voter-like signs to let you know they're having service on Sunday. If Jesus is dead, it really all is worthless. Looking up, they noticed the stone, side note, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, let's be clear the stone being moved, that's not for God. It wasn't as if Jesus, who was dead, came back to life and said, Man, how will I get out of here? (laughs) If you can overcome death, a large stone's not really a problem for you. The stone being moved away was for people who understand death the way that we all should understand death. That it is a reality. That it is final, it is finite, it is the end. We all understand that. We've walked through that, we've swam through that, we've interacted with that. If not for you personally with someone else that you love, you have dealt with death. The stone is not removed so that God can escape. The stone is removed so that the people will be reminded that there's, there's something going on here. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Word they've heard that they're not even supposed to say out loud. Yet they've had to watch he, that man that was crucified. You can't separate the story of the resurrection from the crucifixion. He who was crucified, he has risen. We have it in three words. He is risen. In the original language, it's one. It looks like this. This is the transliteration of it. It is Egerte. E G E R T H E. It is this emphatic, triumphant, declarative, overwhelming word. He is risen. He is risen. Jesus is risen and nowhere to be found because it seems that Jesus has better things to do than to wait around at a grave. He is risen. And these women are completely overwhelmed, completely moved by... He's risen? What does that even mean, He is risen? Because honestly, every one of us and our understanding of death end with a stone covering a tomb. Whether it is what we see in the scriptures or what we see in our current understanding of that. Death is the end. He is risen. Verse 7, go tell his disciples. And you go tell Peter. Those are, they've separated the two for whatever reason. And the reason seems to be pretty clear. Because if you'll remember, Mark gets the story that he writes down from Peter more than likely. And when Peter recounts his story to Jesus, it is a story of him separating himself. He doesn't even see himself as one who belongs to the disciples. He's removed from the idea of being a disciple. He's not united with that in any way, shape, or form. You go tell the disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Now, he's not just told them once. He's told them three times. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he tells them that he is going to die and be punished as a criminal and that he will overcome death. They didn't get it. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, I will show it to you. Then they left that place They made their way through Galilee, but they did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. And then Mark chapter 10, verse 31, yet again, he's going to be raised from death to life. You go meet him there because this is what he told you was going to happen. I almost wonder if it's the tone of a mother or a father when talking to their children. I told you what was going to happen. I told you. I told you. But you've got Peter there who has divided himself from the story. Easter Sunday is unique. Because we get such a. We have more people in churches like ours on Easter Sunday morning. And we didn't even advertise we were having donuts. You just showed up and they were here. And when we begin to think about how our churches promote and Push Easter. There are lots of really good things that are done. We want to let people know. I made a joke about those voter yard signs earlier. As if the various churches in our area are running for council. You don't really get people who are atheists with those signs. You definitely don't get devil worshipers. The people who'll join with us on a Sunday morning like this more often than not are in the very place of Peter in this passage, who for whatever reason have divided themselves from the truth of the good news that Jesus offers and everything that He would told us that He told us that He would do. And we don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. We definitely don't see ourselves as followers of Jesus. We're just removed from it. So you come into a space like this and because you've got church residue or or maybe even church guilt, and you are dividing yourself from the good news of Jesus. Just because of the dumb things that you've done. Maybe you've got anxiety or guilt or shame. I'm not sure. There's a million reasons we would divide ourselves from this story. But this resurrection account that these women encounter, that they are told to go tell Peter and the disciples of, is one that is full of both awe and fear. I understand the fear because dead people typically don't come back to life. Matthew says when he accounts this or verse eight They went verse eight of Mark, they went out and they ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Those words, trembling and astonishment, it's a tension. They're at work together. Yes, they are overwhelmed by this, and they're a a really good bit scared by this. But they are also excited and overjoyed by the absolute possibility that all of the things that he said, he wasn't just talking in cryptic things about overcoming death. He was speaking actual truth there. That death doesn't have to be the end. That there is a beginning that we have in the person of Jesus. Great joy and fear intertwined together. Two years ago, I've shared with some of our friends in here. uh, Two years ago, we, we took our family to SeaWorld. They have roller coasters there. And it was our very first day. And when we walked in to SeaWorld... We look up, and there's a ride called the Steel Eel. Has anyone visited San Antonio in all of its traffic nightmare? And, and we know it is. It's a horrific, terrible place to drive around or to live. And when you... I'm kidding, San Antonians. <coughs> the Steel Eel, it goes 65 miles per hour. There's a 150-foot drop. The G-force, I don't even know what that means, but it's 3.5, which sounds weird. The very first ride of the day, my wife gets in line for the still ill with our children. And I'm standing there with them. And our family's really divided in three different categories. There are those who love roller coasters, there are those who are scared of roller coasters, and there are those of us with high blood pressure. (laughs) So I'm carrying like six backpacks around. I'm putting them in lockers that cost $47.50 per minute. I go back to the top of the line and I see that Hope has our then five-year-old with her and they're getting on the steel ill and it goes all the way up the 150-foot hill and then it zips down 65 miles per hour. The G was forcing. She let me know that my youngest son at the time made a noise for the entirety of the ride. It wasn't woo. It wasn't awesome. It was a mortified. It was this, eh, like he was a dying sheep. Eh. Joy and fear intertwined together. Because Jesus is alive, we walk forward into this world and we know that those things will always be coupled for us. That we will have fear in the face of the darkness, but we should never lose sight of the joy that we have in the resurrected reality that is Jesus. That should be the hope of follower of Jesus. Jesus. That our death died that day and our life lives on. Our death died on the cross. Our life lives with Jesus because He lives. But sadly, we find that we have to, we see this more often that we take Easter for granted and we cease to be overwhelmed or flabbergasted by the inexplicable work of God in that a dead man was alive. What does it look like for God's people to take his kingdom and to run with that? Yes, this is hard. It's overwhelming. And to know that, we're in, that when we are in the place of Peter, that he has not forgotten us. That he still speaks to us. That he still has a word for us. That he has not left us behind. He has not abandoned us. He is still for us. And when he's for us, nobody gets to be against us. That's the rules in Romans that we've been given a hope. This Peter is such a unique character in the scriptures because there's a point for him where the living nature of Jesus is a reality that he cannot escape. He'll actually write this in First Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So for every believing person in this room who showed up because of donuts or yard signs or whatever, hear me say this. If you are looking at your walk with Jesus as something that has been watered down or muddied, Jesus doesn't see it that way. And he calls you to walk with him. Walk with him. Take steps with him. Now in our service, we take communion. you make your background, you may call it communion or the Lord's Supper, but here at grace, we take it every single week. And two nights ago we had our Good Friday service, and it was dark in here. Really dark. It's the service of darkness. You can't light that thing up. And we took communion in a different way. We had loaves of bread, and the elders and others were giving communion to our church members. And rather than the way we do it today, we're going to come up and take the bread and take the cup and go back to your seat and we'll guide you through it. I got to look at our people. People who are not perfect and people who have failed and people who could have easily dismissed themselves from staying with this whole living hope. And some of them who may have done that at some point and some of them who may honestly be doing that at times even now. And I was able to put my hand on shoulders and say to people who I love, who, who I, th- this space is small enough for me to know you. I was able to say to people that I love, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. I got to say that to kids who've just started walking with Jesus. I got to see that, say that to people who have had physical sickness in these last few months I was able to say that to people who've lost loved ones to people who've dealt with family drama this is his body broken for you I got a little bit choked up because the the power of of it all And, and And the beauty of people who are staying with Jesus even though life has dealt them a hand that makes them want to let go sometimes. Give communion to people who, even though there are numerous reasons for them to be afraid, they get to walk with excitement because Jesus is alive. No matter their health, Jesus is alive. No matter what they've walked through, Jesus is alive. No matter what they've dealt with, Jesus is alive. Since he lives, they can be faithful primarily because he is faithful. Since Jesus is alive, the actions that they live out in this world, they matter. They have not been canceled out. Since he is alive, they can have resurrection purpose. I can too. And every believing person in this room can too. Because him being alive does not change because you've had a really bad day. His body is still broken. His blood is still shed. His tomb is still empty. And the invitation to walk with both fear and excitement is to every person in this room because Jesus is still alive. And if Jesus is alive, that means that death doesn't get the final word. It just doesn't. So what I want you to do this morning is I want you to bow your heads with me. In a few moments, Jared is going to walk us through the distinct aspects of communion. But before we do that, I want you to say a few things. One, if you're not a believer in Jesus, this is not for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you don't want to be a believer in Jesus and you just showed up because you care for a friend, that's awesome. We're glad you're here. Communion is for believing people. Because we are saying that his body is broken, his blood is shed, And his tomb is empty. If you're in this space and you're not a believer, again, I would ask, just don't take communion. If you've got questions about it, I'm in the back of the room. I'd love to talk to you about those questions. If you are a believer in Jesus, I want to invite you to interact with the Lord before you jump up and take a wafer and take a cup of juice. Wherever you happen to be, could you just be reminded that he is a love? And interact with him because of that. Jesus, I believe that you are a love. And deal with your anxieties and your fears because he is alive. love. Those don't get the final word. Jesus does. If you're in our space today and we're so glad you're here and you've not been here in a while and you just want to be prayed over, I'm in the back of the room. I'm in the back of the room. I'd love to pray for you, to pray with you. If you don't want me to pray with you, we have some great church people here that would love to pray with you. We celebrate that Jesus is alive today. Would this be a day where believing people come together around that life with fear and excitement and walk into our world with the purpose that God has given because Jesus matters because He's alive. Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for your word.